0: What's up? My name is Rosan Clairu, and you are now listening to Americanized, a storytelling podcast where you'll hear from eclectic first and second generation Americans, share their stories and real life experiences as children of immigrants. Hey there, thank you so much for tuning into a new episode of Americanized after the hiatus. I'm so very excited and happy to bring this episode to you with its focus on mental health. So happy May, happy Mental Health Awareness Month, and though this month is coming to a close, that is no reason to stop prioritizing or even thinking about your own mental health and mental wellness, ways to cope, and ways to take care of yourself. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with my former grad school professor, Amanda Rodriguez, She is the mental health advocate and enthusiast. She taught mental health, which is now referred to as psychosocial. She taught those courses for my occupational therapy degree, which I am now um, studying to sit for the board exams pretty soon. So I'm asking for positive energy, prayers and support from all of you. In this episode, We discuss her background with mental health studies, mental health from an occupational therapy, or OT as occupational therapy is abbreviated, OT perspective, OT point of view, which includes sensory processing, trauma, trauma trauma-informed care, the stigma that comes with mental health, and the recent uprise and awareness of mental health within society, I think especially during the pandemic. We also discuss a lot more a lot more things for you guys to take away and a lot of gems that that'll just really enlighten you so do stay tuned but how have you been it's been i haven't seen you since probably the pinning oh my goodness it's so long ago yeah it's weird well the pandemic happened in between (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is
1: true i had a baby you did yeah i'm not sure if you know that so i i have an almost one year old now so things are Uh, very different at the same time, very much so the same. I just have someone I get to play with now. Yeah,
0: that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, How was it like being like an OT mom?
1: Oh, my goodness. Now that is something entirely different. I sort of had always thought, well, you know, I was interested in pediatrics to some degree. But kids kind of terrify me, the idea that they could band together and sort of mutiny, right? They don't have to listen to adults. Mm -hmm. And so now having my own kid, I think there's pieces of that as she starts to age that comes in. But also just like the OT lens, being able to think about development and structuring environments for her to be successful and even thinking about the language that I use when I'm talking with her. I think I take for granted or have taken for granted how much I actually know in helping her grow. When I see different Instagram posts or Facebook posts about, you know, specialized areas and how to support kids' growth, I'm like, this is what we do as OTs. Like, we know this. I know this stuff. I'm already
0: doing it. All right. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So I want to start by saying I feel really lucky to know you and to have you as a psychosocial or mental health professor professor. For my OT grad studies. Um, you're just like a super memorable person, just your energy and your attitude oh. and passion for mental health, mental illness. Yeah, it's really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. But before we get into the mental health talk, I do want to ask you to t- talk about yourself, your ethnic background, what you do, what your interests are. Oh, man. And <laughs> the Dr. OT mom life.
1: Yeah. So I'm Amanda Rodriguez. Um, I did get married, oh oh goodness, almost two years ago, but I still go by Rodriguez. Um, And when I teach and I tell students that uh, it is my, and I'm Dr. Rodriguez, that professional title is so important for me to connect to my last name, my maiden name. And that speaks to where I come from. So my father's Puerto Rican um, and I have a lot of Puerto Rican pride, you know, I feel a little bit, I don't know what word it would be, but I would love to speak more Spanish. So that's one sort of piece of Puerto Rican pride that's missing. But when I became a doctor, that was one of the things that I thought, yeah, I want to be Dr. Rodriguez. I don't want to be Dr. My married last name. Um, And that speaks also to the fact that I'm a first generation college student. So nobody in my family um, had ever gone to college, never mind got their doctorate. So it's pretty huge and pretty significant. Um, and I think about sort of what my grandmother would say in Spanish, cause she spoke no English, um, if she knew that her granddaughter had become a doctor. So I take immense, immense pride in being called Dr. Rodriguez. I go back and forth about, you know, should I change it at some point? And no, it's just gonna stick. <laughs> So uh, my father's Puerto Rican. He grew up in Puerto Rico, uh, came to the States, I want to say in the late or late 60s, early 70s. Um, we have, a, you know, I think about holidays and being together with family is very important, of course. Um, and yet having a daughter, I named her actually after my grandmother. So really keeping, I guess, the cultural piece alive, um, which I really love to think about and love to do. Take a lot of, again, pride in. Other things to know about me. Um, So occupational therapy is definitely a passion of mine. Uh, And it nicely integrates with mental health, of course. When I actually went to school to become an occupational therapist, I didn't know that OTs did all this other stuff besides mental health. So I was really thrown off when uh, I had to do all these science-related courses. I was like, wait a minute, why do I need to learn about all these muscles and whatnot when all we're going to do is mental health-related stuff? I realized, oh, OT is this massive profession that touches on everything. Um, Doctor mom life, man, I'm realizing how important roles are, roles and responsibilities and identity and all of that is sort of coming together, thinking about being a doctor, being a mom, being a professor, being a clinician being you know i still feel like i'm seven years old sometimes i just want to go out and play and then i remember like oh that's right i'm an adult i'm supposed to be doing these certain things so uh really just striking the balance between what makes me happy in all of that i'm trying not to you know feel too much of the societal pressure to be a certain way or to act a certain way especially with the doctor piece people say oh we'll refer to you as dr rodriguez i'm like please Amanda is
0: fine. I
1: like that. There's no, I I recognize I worked hard and at the same time, I'm a human and you could just call me Amanda. That works. Right. right.
0: Wow. That's amazing. That's really cool. How you're keeping up with your, the cultural piece, you're carrying that on with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I remember, um, I think one of the last courses with you, you're like, you said you want to uh, start speaking more Spanish. How's that going? (laughs) So I speak as much Spanish as I can with my daughter. That's awesome,
1: um, and so she knows water as agua. So we've nice. never called it water. So <laughs> when she wants her little sippy cup, like she'll say agua, which is really cute because she's 11 months old. So it's like oh, oh, agua, is what it sounds <laughs> like. Like she's got marbles in her mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's like I don't know, like something that just gets my heart to think, like oh my gosh, like that's that's just what she knows. Like she hasn't been taught anything else. Nothing has tainted her worldview where she's like, no, this is just the Spanish word. This is, this is it. That's it. Um, and I try to read to her some bilingual books at nighttime, which is really great for me because I get to practice my pronunciation and like work on the timing of how I read without, you know, feeling like other people are watching. That's one of the things that gets in the way is that my anxiety around, like, am I doing this right? And, you know, am I, am I really Puerto Rican and am I really allowed to claim this piece when I don't actually speak the language or maybe I don't pronounce things the right way. And so to read to her, is just like, this is all that matters is our little bubble and I'm doing the best I can. And we're having good quality time together.
0: I love that so, 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 so much. That's so awesome. <laughs> oh, that's, that warms my heart. I'm like stuck on that. That's amazing. That's that's really cool because I feel like with my family speaks French and mm-hmm. I want to learn or I want to like speak it fluently I know some words but it there's is that pressure and there's that anxiety to like speak it out with my family because it's not yeah. right it doesn't sound right it's not and then yeah say, yeah
1: so weird I was just thinking about something related to this where like family parties growing up, like we, we just danced, like the music would be loud and people just started dancing in the living room around Christmas time. And when I was little, like that would be something I would jump into no problem. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but my aunt's going to teach me and we're just going to go with it. And then like, as, as I aged, as time went by, there's so much more like reservation that's put on that of like not wanting to put yourself out there. So I have to, I try to, think about like, well, what is that? What is so different between being little and going for it and being an adult and going for it? Like there's, there's nothing like, and if everyone just realized that no. we could do a lot of the stuff that we keep <laughs> ourselves from doing.
0: That is so true. I, I want to dig into like what that is. I don't know like where to start, but that's something yeah. I want to find out too. I think yeah. a lot of people of like, like first generation of cultural piece or different cultures coming to America and ex- expressing that, and being a first generation or second generation, or not, yeah, growing up fully like in the culture, and then you're trying to dive in. It's like, do I dip my toes in, or do I just, dive yeah, in?
1: yeah. And so- like, if if you like here, so when I shared my piece, and then you shared your, you know, hesitation about speaking French, that made me think, oh, it's not just me, mm. like, how many other people are having that same experience, and if we all just realized. Oh, you feel that way too? All right, then let's just do it, right? If we're all anxious, then let's just drop the anxiety around it because we all want to try it. Yeah, but it's There's okay. Yeah, there is like this, I don't know, this weird fear, not really fear, but something that we put on it. Like, just go for it.
0: Yeah. I've been so-
1: thinking about meeting with you when you had texted. Uh-huh. I was like, oh gosh, that makes me really nervous. But, you know, if something makes me nervous, then I probably care about it and mm-hmm. I want to do well. And so, why not just do it? Lean into the discomfort a little bit. Yeah. 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 And it's Try do that, like every now and then, just like yeah, not-, <laughs> not everything, but every now and then be like, okay, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I should probably do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See what it feels like. I'll survive this. Yeah. You'll survive speaking French. It might feel uncomfortable, but nothing bad's going to happen.
0: I, honestly. Yeah. It's just practicing a language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So funny. Going back to what you said, interesting how you thought OT was solely mental health and then mm-hmm. it's all these other things. Yeah. And I feel like oh, yeah. a lot of people go in with it like, it's all these other things and then mental health is on top of it. Yeah. It's interesting. So what yeah. was your like transition from, because I know you studied mental health, you said in undergrad. Mm-hmm. So what was oh, yeah. your transition like?
1: So yeah, I have my bachelor's degree in psychology and then I went back to, for my master's four years later. So there's a little bit of a gap in between. Um, I was working in a mental health field. So I was a direct case worker. um, So I was like taking clients grocery shopping and helping them clean their apartments and helping them manage their medication. Eventually I moved into this position where I was working on a day program, running all these groups and activities, and we had OT that came in. And long story short, I realized, wait a minute, I'm pretty much doing what these OT people are doing, but like they have the science and um, background to understand like how to structure things to get the outcome they want. I was just sort of willy-nilly like, all right, let's do cooking group today because it seems like you guys like to cook, but I didn't know how to structure things. And so, so that was my sort of take was, again, just seeing those OTs and seeing how they were doing this mental health stuff. And so transitioning into the classroom was, uh, oh my gosh, I remember thinking within like the first week that I wasn't, I was in the wrong spot because everyone else knew so much more about all of the other stuff. So I didn't know like the terms for flexion and extension, you know, like moving your arms or abduction and adduction, and like seeing other students rattle it off, like made me feel like I was in the wrong spot. Um, And then when we actually got into the mental health courses and I was the student raising my hand, either agreeing with the professor or saying, hmm, that's actually not what I've seen. Like I have my own experience having worked at this point. Then I started to realize like, okay, I don't know this other physical dysfunction or physical ability side of things but I definitely know this mental health side of things. And I love the way OT looks at the world. And so putting these two together just made so much sense to me. So I really found my niche pretty quickly. Um, Yeah, and I I was definitely like the mental health person. And I I think my professors appreciated that because I loved what they were teaching, but I also challenged them a little bit because some of their teachings were a little bit outdated or based on, you know, case studies from how many years ago. And it's like, actually, I literally just worked with this guy this morning, and this isn't how it is for him. So um, that made me feel, you know, balanced out, not feeling like I belonged, and really put me in this place of like, oh, yeah, you know what you're doing.
0: Great. It gave you that confidence from your clinical experience and applying it to the classroom and challenging your professors. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What was their... Reaction, like were they like, oh yeah, she knows things or (laughs) (laughs) hold on. Um, I think
1: I oh gosh. I feel like one professor was definitely like, really, she's raising her hand again. (laughs) Um, but I also know that professor was like the mental health guru. And so I think she respected and appreciated that I was thinking critically about the stuff that was being presented and not just taking it at face value. So I thought, yeah, that's true well, what about this? And so I'd always be that little, did we consider this piece? Um, Especially when it came to generalizations. That was something I really struggled with was when we were talking about diagnoses and it was like, they sort of always present like this. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like people are unique and individual. So we need to honor that. And so, and part of that too is like, my classmates had no interest in mental health. So I felt like I had to advocate for these folks that I was working with so that they knew like, These mental health diagnoses aren't scary. These people aren't terrifying. Like, let me give you a real human perspective. And so that was me raising my hand saying, Mm. wait a minute, hold on, let me add this. Um, And I do think just now being an educator myself, students who do that, I love because it tells me that they're paying attention and that they are thinking critically and they're not just going, you know whatever the professor says is doctrine. Like, nope, you can have these varying perspectives and you know, that student may then go on to research something and add new information to what we already know. Um, And so I would rather have a student that is sort of always challenging things than have a student who just like passively participates.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of students or when you were in school weren't like into mental health. And I feel that was the same when I was in school too. Like there's, I wonder if like, There is this huge huge stigma um towards mental health i wonder if that's that carried through like with people who had to study it for school
1: yeah i wonder i've so recently i'm blown away by how many students are interested in mental health and i i've noticed this shift and this is something i you know hindsight would have loved to have documented to see how things actually have progressed but I feel like every so I do a lot of mentoring for students at other schools. And whenever I have Zoom chats and I say, you know, what practice setting are you interested in? Like a good chunk of them say mental health. And I'm like, what is happening where people are interested? And I think there is now, especially now, this shift where we think about what's happening, you know, in our society with unfortunately, like uh, I'm just thinking of like gun-related issues, school shootings and whatnot, or You know any sort of uh, like criminal activity that people are now starting to think how did mental health influence this or how could mental health help these situations so especially when we think about like the defund the police movement like of course mental health getting people on the front lines there that would make such a valuable impact and so maybe that is sort of getting people to think about the role and the value of mental health i'm not sure how it connects so much with OT yet. So I could see the how society takes interest, but why are there suddenly so many OTs in specific that are taking an interest?
0: Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I was gonna say that there has been a great emphasis on mental health in general. Yeah. Like society, like oh, they want to check in on their mental health. Yeah. The, the mental pandemic? health affairs. yeah the pandemic. <laughs> Both pandemics, the virus and racism. And yeah how like that's impacting everyone's mental health, mental wellness, Mm -hmm. being stuck at home. Like it's, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah,
1: it is. And uh, I think too, you know, how do you get the word out about giving people grace in all of this too? So like, as people become more aware of their mental health, like, is there more panic around like, oh my God, is something wrong with me? Versus like the world is challenging right now. Like allow it to be challenging and give yourself some grace and recognize like you may not be able to do the things you have done, and that's totally fine. Like it doesn't need to be this huge reaction to things, but like the world is tough. Okay, mm. do the best you can. That's really <laughs> what you can
0: do. Right. Do the best you can is one of my sort of taglines <laughs> I like mm-hmm. to say often. <laughs> do the best you can. Yep. Oh, what is it? The ACL. The ACLF. <Yeah> i do yeah. remember that yeah. <laughs> that's that's a life that's a pro tip for life just do the best mm-hmm. you can do the best you can yeah how would you define mental health or mental like mental health is a broad term and i think people include that with mental illness and mental wellness so what's your mm-hmm. own definition oh good
1: question Um, Well, I think of mental health similar to that of physical health. So we have varying degrees of physical health and it could change on any given day, right? If we think about physical health, sometimes we eat really well, our bodies feel fantastic, which I would, you know, reason probably connects to mental health too. Um, So there may be days where you do things that are great for yourself and you feel wonderful from a mental health perspective, or you could have days where things just feel a little bit off. So it doesn't have to be this, um, pinpoint spot where it's like, oh, my mental health is poor. Like it ebbs and flows throughout the day, sort of the way I see it. And then there's, you know, on the stepping back a little bit, this spectrum of sort of wellness and having really good mental health. So mental wellness versus being, you know, maybe a little bit more stuck than usual. So you're sliding down to the other side of the spectrum. I don't see it as you know, a really concrete spot you can map, like it's very fluid. Um, and I, you know, thinking about even mental health, I, I think about the language we use and, you know, mental health, mental well being. when people are having, you know, mental health challenges versus mental health disorders versus mental illness, like there's so many words and word is, words are such an important part of like, of course, labeling things, but they carry so much weight. And so that's something I find myself constantly thinking about when I'm teaching, especially is like, what word do I want to use to capture this? Because I don't want to reinforce this stigma. And I do want to communicate this idea of it being really flowy (laughs) and spectrumy when we think about, I guess, our mental health.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to see it. Like it does fluctuate throughout the day. And mm-hmm. I do believe that it is associated with the food we eat like that. And just uh, like seeing it as a like physical health or physical wellness. It's yeah. part of taking care of.
1: And they're so, so deeply connected. And yeah. that is something I could talk for hours or days about how 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 your body feels impacts your mental well-being and your mental well-being impacts how your body feels like there are you can't you cannot separate them. Mm-hmm. So thinking about you know what what do you feel like when you're anxious like you feel your heart rate go up. Okay, an increased heart rate is a sign of a physical condition and it's also a sign of your mental health, right? So like you can't separate those two out. So when I think about food, that's why I was like oh yeah, well food impacts how your body feels and how your body feels impacts your well-being and how your well-being probably impacts the foods that you're going to eat right a little bit more stressed and anxious you're probably not going to eat the stuff that's so great so your body's not going to feel so great and here we go there's the cycle it is
0: a cycle it's all intertwined yeah yeah that brings me to the the vagal nerve you emphasize that a lot and that like (laughs) (laughs) you shared with us a super super long but informative powerpoint like yeah i actually really love that powerpoint i've shared it with a few people outside of oh wonderful yeah because i'm like you guys have to know this stuff it's so important and so yeah just cool to know and when you shared like sensory processing like i was hooked on that like i just yeah that was so cool so share about if you would like to share about sensory processing and (laughs) interoception
1: Oh my gosh. This, this is the stuff that makes me giddy. Yes. Um, but it's like so overwhelming. There's so much information out there. And mm-hmm. so the I'm glad you said the, the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve, I want to say is cranial nerve number 10, if I'm correct, <laughs> for those keeping track. <laughs> um, and it is a Sensory and motor nerve. So that means it takes in sensory information. So from our world, it picks up on that. And the motor part of it is that it uses that information to generate a response. So um, the vagus nerve is deeply connected to the experiences we have, how we feel things, because it's sensory. And it also is connected to the way that that is expressed, right? What you see, the motor piece. So when I think specifically about mental well-being, physical well-being, right, our vagus nerve senses things that are happening in our environment, and then its responses can be things like heart rate, um, dilating your pupils, contracting your muscles, your digestive system. So literally, the information that you take in from your environment impacts how your body responds. So thinking about that, like when you're feeling anxious, if you see, uh, I like to use the example. So I'm a runner and I, well, (laughs) used to run a little bit more before I had the baby. Um, but I love trail running and I always would have to put my contacts in when running or wear glasses. And if anyone's run with glasses, you know, they just fog up and they bounce everywhere. So, um, I had to do that because When I would when I was running, I would misinterpret things that I was seeing. So I'd be like, oh my God, is that tree a bear? Or like, oh, that stick is a snake, right? So my I'm perceiving through my senses that there's some threat in the environment. So that's my vagus nerve is picking up on some of that information. And it's making my heart rate go up. It's making me a little bit more tense, right? So your mental well-being, right? That sense of anxiety is deeply connected to that physical response. So that's sort of the vagus nerve piece of it. The great thing about the vagus nerve is that just like it can respond and tense things up, it can also relax things. So one really great strategy that OTs use is tapping into the vagus nerve to relax it. So learning how to quiet down that vagus nerve so it doesn't have those really strong um, motor responses. That may be super technical, I'm not really sure, Um, but simple things that you can do to to work on that vagus nerve uh, is singing, right? So the vagus nerve is connected to like the throat muscles in here. So singing, humming, um, chanting. And I think about like um, Tibetan or Eastern cultures and how much they value sort of those practices and how many like, like the Buddhist arm, right? Like that is totally tapping into exercising and toning what's called the vagus nerve. So that can be really soothing and relaxing. Um, There's some other things, specific interventions, but I won't go into it too much. The other side of the vagus nerve, or in general, all of this is general sensory processing. Um, And so this is where, you know, I think back to being a student where I feel like most of my classmates stopped caring in some way because so often sensory processing is seen as like this kid-based thing. And we put kids on swings and we, you know, put them in a ball pit and it's super sensory and it's for kids with autism or ADHD, right? It's really targeted to this thing. And I realized, I don't know if it was through I don't think it was through the school itself, but I think my own research, my own connections to individuals, that sensory processing has such a huge impact on our mental well-being, right? So, you know, taking what would be literally an entire course of, that I could teach about this and putting it into a small manageable package would be that our bodies have a unique way of processing the world we live in. So the way that I interpret the world is unique to myself, the way that you interpret the world is unique to you, the way that your parents, your siblings, whoever, they have their own unique way of interpreting the world. And so when we're in environments that are difficult for us to interpret, we may present um, as frustrated, as disinterested, because our bodies are struggling to handle all this information. Not sure if I'm explaining that, so great. Um, But basically for like personal example, let's use that. I get really overwhelmed with a lot of visual stimuli. So like if things are super cluttered, it's super messy, like, my eyes cannot handle all of that and so I do better in environments and I'm looking around right now because everything on this desk is like just so like I like knowing here's this it's nice and neat here's this other thing nice and neat and now I'm able to attend and to pay attention to this because I'm not worrying about oh my gosh there's all this stuff over here and it's like driving me bonkers um so (laughs) that was a super uh brief, uh, not very thorough overview, but a good intro, I think, into the vagus nerve and some sensory related stuff.
0: Yeah, it is. And it's, I always found it so interesting because I feel like it's very simple and basic, but it's also a lot to wrap your head around.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I, you know, I find that I like to cater how I teach it to what people know. And I think that's also a very OT thing to do, right? We want to check in and see like, okay, what do What do you know? What do you understand? What's the best way that I can teach you? How do you learn best? And then I'll try to tell people about it. So if I find that people are hesitant to believe (laughs) in sensory based stuff, then that's what I use myself as a personal example, because you can't refute my life experience, right? I know that I do better when things aren't cluttered or when there's not annoying rattling sounds like I just can't focus when there's auditory stuff happening. And then if people still don't buy into it, or usually what will happen then is people share their experience. of like, oh my God,
0: me too. too."
1: Or, oh, it's the opposite for me. And then I can provide some information. So usually there's some connecting point there. If they still don't believe, then I go a little bit deeper into the science of it. And then, you know, sometimes I hate to pull this card, but like, if they still don't believe it, then I'm dropping like really big words. So that's like, These are really, this is a really scientific thing. This isn't, you know, the playful child, you know, sensory clinic that people think of, but like, no, we have afferent and efferent neural pathways (laughs) and they generate our motor responses. And so that's why you get overwhelmed in X, Y, Z conditions, or that's why it looks like this happening. So, yeah, uh, I like to, with anything, you know, cater to whoever I'm with.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I know you. I know you know all of this stuff. <laughs> <There you are. laughs> or I should. I should know all this stuff. No, I do. Well,
1: I was gonna say even, even just recognizing, even if you don't know it, know it inside out, but recognizing that it it's truth for some people is huge because it just it it. I don't know. I, it's so freeing in so many ways. So like when I see folks. Well, first of all, I default to people are inherently good. So I think everyone is really just trying to do their best, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh gosh, I was just talking to my mom about how formula is kept behind, you know, um, like locked cases in stores so that people don't steal it. And, you know, she was like, you know, people steal formula. And she was having this sort of this, she's going down this negative path. And I was like, but they're stealing it so they can provide for their family. Like, yes, that's, we don't want to steal ideally, but like, it's coming from a good place. Like they're not just doing it so they can sell it on the street to somebody else, right? It is because they need to provide for their family. They are trying to do their best. They're trying to be inherently good in caring for their kids. It's just access to resources, you know, makes things challenging for some folks. So then when I think about when I'm in the community or interacting with someone, and they are frustrating me, I think, okay, well, they want to be the best person. Like this person wants to feel good. So what is it about it? That's getting in the way. And that's when I think about sensory related stuff. And I'm like, is it too hot in here? And that's why they're getting cranky or did they not eat enough? So like that satiation interoceptive piece is getting in their way or am I, is it too loud? Am I talking too much? Am I, you know, any of the sensory related stuff, could that be impacting why they're not being their best? And like, oh, okay. Like it's freeing to know I can maybe support this person. I don't
0: know. That's the way I I, hear. I love that so much. It's like a positive outlook. Everyone's trying to do their best. What's bothering, bothering them that they're not doing their best?
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I think like, so when, when you were saying like you, that you may not know all of it, right? Which I don't even think I know all of it, of course, but like you understand that someone's environment could impact how they feel. And Mm so, okay, that makes sense. Like you're not going to be like, oh my God, that person is just ridiculous. And I can't believe they're doing these things, but there's a little question mark that might pop up for you and go, hmm, what could be happening for this person? Okay. Like not ideal that they're behaving this way, but I get it because something might be challenging for
0: them. Right. That's true. Yeah. And I think another piece to add to that, so like speaking on mental health would be trauma, trauma-related things and the how yeah. or how trauma impacts behaviors.
1: Yeah. Trauma is huge. So trauma is trauma, sensory-based work are probably trauma, sensory-based work, and I think what we call therapeutic use of self are like my three favorite things ever. Um, it's weird to say that trauma is my favorite, but it's my favorite in that it really helps to explain. Um, how people present. So that basic piece that we were just talking about, like what, what may be getting in people's way. Um, And there's like so much that can be done to support folks who have trauma. And I feel like even just validating people's experience of trauma is huge for that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has such a huge impact on our community. So like, it is very much so like the village mentality, right? Like if somebody has trauma, like that is going to trickle into other people's lives. And so why wouldn't we want to support these folks and make them feel, you know, that they're safe in whatever regard. Um, So, yeah, that's another piece I think about when people are, uh, when I see that people are struggling is I think, huh, what has their life experience been like that leads them to behave this way? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think some people would say, I don't know, that I'm too... I don't know, not, not too kind. Like, there was a term that used to be used a lot when I worked in group homes, where it was like, you know, you didn't hold people accountable or whatever it might be. And I'm just like, no, I just recognize that there are a lot of factors that are influencing whatever they're doing. It's not as clear cut as people make it seem. And man, wouldn't that be so easy if we could just say, oh, it's because of this, that they're acting this way. Like, no, there's so many variables. So like, is it the present environment that's making this person distressed? Or is it something that happened to them that they subconsciously aren't even aware of from their childhood that's like, oh, that's why they're reacting this way. Right. And then as a clinician or even as a human being, to think that you could be a part of that person's life to make them feel safe and change the trajectory. Like, why wouldn't you want to be involved in that? If it's so easy as just saying, I hear you, I accept you, I see you. Like, that's so easy to do.
0: Easy, yeah. And that, yeah. the little things, that could be all they needed to hear or yeah. to, or somebody like that in their life, yeah. That yeah. reminds me of my, um, the last field work that I just finished, my second field work, I was at a behavioral health, behavioral health school slash group home Mm -hmm. with what they call behavioral kids they're not yeah you know how I feel about behavior I hate that word (laughs) that's like I would have to do this when I talk to kids or anybody but yeah I was like I had I was slow to like build rapport with the kids because I knew they had a trauma background that's what they Mm -hmm. emphasized in orientation yeah so I did not want to trigger them by anything yeah even saying hi I was like I don't know yeah I was, I was being a little bit over dramatic but at the same time it's like you never know yeah and therapeutic use of self was just like thrown at me like that's something I really had to learn to do and learn to be the person that they needed in the moment or just yeah. like support them with like sensory or just seeing them mm-hmm. and hearing them and I would always like ask myself with that question so like what why are they behaving this way what brought them to this placement like why are they not at home or like what's going on
1: really right right yeah. so you're, you're also taking that mentality of like they're inherently good so what's keeping them from getting what they need right like yeah. huh? that little bit of curiosity mm-hmm. goes a long way because when you have when folks have that perspective of oh it's this you are limiting yourself to literally only seeing that right. like if you're curious and you ask what's
0: happening here like, oh my goodness, the things that you could be seeing. Mm-hmm. Different people, different perspectives. Cause I'll be like, like I see the good side of these kids, like they could be like really bad, but I'm like, they're actually really sweet if you yeah. <laughs> when they're good, they're really good. Yeah. But then like I think when people see the bad side of kids, they just kind of run with that and like, oh yeah, they're a bad yeah. kid, they have behaviors, they're they're this, or that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 and yeah, we'll be like talking with their teachers or different clinicians, and they all have different perspectives from just based on what they see and not from like a clinical side of things.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And so, and I think about the fact that you said, you know, you took your time in developing those relationships. As a student, especially that can be tricky because there's this pressure to be a therapist and a practitioner and you're supposed to be doing interventions. And if you're not, then what are you doing? But the therapeutic use of self and giving the individual time is an intervention. Right. It's honoring their experience and it's thinking like, hmm, what is the best way to approach this individual? do I want to say hi now? Do I say hi? Do I say hello? Do I just wave? Do I surprise them? No, we're not going to surprise them. We know that the trauma don't like surprises. (laughs) Um, Do I do it consistently at the same time? You know, like you're thinking about all of these things and maybe you didn't even recognize all of those pieces that you were thinking of. Mm -hmm. And so too, like thinking about beyond being a student, like working for an agency that genuinely appreciates and values trauma-informed care that recognizes that things take time um, is really important because there otherwise there is this pressure to do the work. But doing the work is taking your time. So I always tell stories about kids that I worked with who would literally cuss me out for like three months straight and say they're not coming to group and they're not gonna go to treatment. And I remember, I would just think to myself, this isn't personal, right? It's They aren't attacking me. Like right. this is just their expression and they're totally allowed to say that. And sometimes I would just say, thanks for communicating. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to recognize the fact that you could have just walked away and said nothing, but you are telling me how you feel. Now, granted, it's not the words I'd like to hear, but that's not on me to choose your words. That's on you to choose your words. Right. That's and so- but by not taking it personally. Right. And by showing up the next day with the same amount of energy of like, Hey, you want to come to group? Cuss me out again. Sure. Whatever. Hey, you want to come to group? Like, Oh, now I'm predictable. I'm a safe person. I'm not going to yell at them because they're communicating or expressing. They don't want to do something like it, that's their choice. Right.
0: right.
1: Yeah. I can't make them do that. And then that's when, when things start to come together, like, I feel like they come together really quickly. Once you gain trust, Mm -hmm. for the most part, if you've gotten there nice and slow, right, then you're in. And there may be, of course, some challenges to that. But I feel like in my experience, kids and adults really appreciate when you when you honor their decisions like what a weird thought that yeah. like what somebody wants could mean so much I
0: know <laughs> <laughs> I've had those experiences this one student just did not want to do OT anymore and I was like okay I obviously can't take it personally I'm only there temporarily as a student yeah. and I was just like yeah thanks for sharing that thanks for communicating that and you know, good job. Like letting us know, otherwise you wouldn't have known how you felt about yeah. coming down here. And yeah, so just um,
1: val- I, validating. Was hey, did you? I'm just curious. Like, what were some of those kids' responses when you were like,
0: "Okay, that's fine." They're actually really like cool about. It. They're pretty calm. They're they're just like, "Okay, you hear me? Like, hopefully, I don't come here next week." But <laughs> it wasn't anything <laughs> bad. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was it really caught me by surprise because it was like the, at the end of the session,
1: mm-hmm. they
0: kind of just they kind of just blew up and I was like, whoa. I, yeah. know. I, I could I am good at staying calm and any, like I'm always calm, <laughs> but like I was like, okay. Um, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for letting me know. I'll, I'll talk to the supervisor, or whatever. But, uh, thanks for letting us know.
1: Yeah. That's a great skill set to have is that ability to remain calm. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like now I'm thinking, like, oh man, if I was in a, a really wild situation and Rosalind was there, how like I'd probably look to you and be like, oh my gosh, can I just can I just be next to you? Just because <laughs> like you're so steady in, you know, in chaotic environments, that's what we want is something that's predictable and steady. And so I'm like, oh, I know exactly what to expect from you. I'm gonna go closer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. It's either that or I'm just really leak slow to process what's going on and what to do (laughs) next I'm like frozen well let's call that deliberate you're really deliberate
1: Deliberate. you think about what to do
0: (laughs) yep I'm thinking about it that that happened like um it did not happen often a few students would blow up and I would kind of freeze but it was like okay just keeping calm cool and professional But I'm also like I don't know what to do right now (laughs)
1: Yeah. I feel like no response or yeah. not no response, but taking your time to soak up the information is better than I think what some folks do. And they have that quick reactive, you know, ah! like, mm-hmm. and then adding to the chaos,
0: right.
1: Which is tough, tough to teach. And, you know, thinking about trauma itself, like sometimes that's both of those, I would say the polar ends, the freeze part and the really reactive part could be its own trauma response. Mm-hmm. So. Sometimes, you know, and I'm, I share pretty candidly, like I have my own trauma experience. And so like, I'm aware of environments or situations that may agitate things. And so when I'm starting to have a reaction, I have to think, okay, what do I need in this moment? Because this isn't about the relationship between me and the kid or whatever is happening, but this is about my stuff. So like, how do I step back before I jump in here?
0: right it's that whole like taking care of yourself so you can take care of others
1: yeah you can't pour
0: from an empty cup (laughs) right yeah (laughs) exactly oh yeah you did say something that I was going to add to about perspectives um back at the placement I was at we have students if they like get out of program they they're placed like in the basement it's not like a dungeon it's not it's not (laughs) it's it's just an area where all the offices are and there's an empty room and it's in uh, the basement of the building but it's not like a dingy basement okay and yeah so they stay there (laughs) i don't know how long they're there for but all the ot offices are there Mm -hmm. and after we left i guess the kid was there overnight and there's just holes in the wall like he used (laughs) a file cabinet something like part of a file cabinet he like destroyed it and just like destroyed the wall there's like holes in the wall everywhere (laughs) yeah and so everyone's reaction next morning was like what happened down here like this is bad this kid like who who was this kid who let this happen Mm -hmm. something like that but my supervisor her ot perspective was like okay i see the walls he likes the pressure he likes the heavy work he needs that input because um i think the janitor he heard the kid say while he was doing that like he i think the kid was saying like he likes the feeling or something that he likes yeah yeah and so the ot yeah. she was talking to the janitor the next day and she was like oh this is he needs ot so she started like she's sending out emails like can this kid benefit from like brushing or wow heavy work and i was like wow. what a good way of looking at it yeah i was like That's and i, I think that sort of
1: speaks to i like i feel like that curiosity piece about like hmm, what could be happening here yeah you know, versus the oh this is bad we must punish this right exactly Right, you punish it, you're not really fixing it though. No, you're making things worse. Yeah. It's one of the things I'm not sure if maybe you had this experience too working with kids, but there's this, I think a lot of times too, there's this jump to punish and to take things away and whatever. And it's very rarely paired with like the teaching part of like what should be done instead, or Mm -hmm. what can we do to support you? So it's like, oh, you know, they didn't get on the bus in time, so we're taking away their TV. It's like, well, did we think about how we could support them so they could get on their bus in time? Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, it's are like, we just why? taking things away? Yeah, yeah, you have to always ask why. Like, why did this happen? Or what's impacting this behavior? Yeah. And that's what my placement was really good at. Like, um, teaching moments instead of just, yeah. they never took things away. They would, like, either you don't earn, we had, like, points. Yeah. Earn, either you don't earn points and you learn why or you replace behaviors, things like that. Yeah. But they would not take things away.
1: That's, um, so I know like our mental health stigma and the perspective of mental health, is like shifting for the positive, like where people, especially when I think about like the work being done with men and mental health and, you know, men can't be sensitive and blah blah, 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 blah. Now there's like this, you know, men are openly expressing their mental health challenges. So like, like as, a, as an example of like, okay, we're becoming more accepting and whatnot. I would love to see a shift where we don't think about punishment the same way and I guess sort of speaking to the trauma piece like that we you know I feel like so many people say like oh you're letting them get away with it or Mm -hmm. whatever and it's like but are you are you considering what may have impacted them to get to the point that they're at and like being more understanding of that I just feel like I I see so many things on of course Facebook Mm -hmm. where it's like people are so quick to judge and jump to conclusions and say, take things away and don't do this. And, you know, people have no respect anymore. And teachers like kids get away with everything. And part Mm -hmm. of me is like, no, we're, we're just being more trauma informed. We're recognizing that there are different circumstances that impact how people, you know, do their lives and what people, I don't know how people respond. And that always being punitive is not helping. Mm -hmm. And I feel like right now, especially, and maybe it's just because I see it more on my Facebook timeline, but like, people are a little bit more heated and contentious about it and feel like, oh my gosh, we're being so soft and everybody's a snowflake these days. No, we are just recognizing the variables in play and like trying to think creatively about how to support people instead of just dismissing them and, you know, being punitive.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, when I learned about trauma-informed care, I was like, "Shouldn't this be happening everywhere? Like, why is this? A, why am yeah. I learning about Why this? is this a thing?" Yeah, exactly. Like, why is this? Like, why is this a yeah. new thing?
1: Yeah. I, so I think so, about that so often when people ask me to like teach or present on it, because mm-hmm. I'm like, "What do I present on?" Like, it's just so to me, so duh. So like, yeah. this is how you should just treat people. That's so part so- of me wants to be like trauma-informed care like there's a the title slide the next slide is
0: just be a good person oh, yeah, <laughs> that's all you need to do yeah it's in the word like trauma-informed <laughs> I think everyone should um just like knowing that everyone has gone through something mm-hmm. be careful about that and be a nice like be a good person really- yeah when I do do the the teaching for it
1: um I sort of think I like default again, like, well, people know that they should just be good, right? Some people unfortunately don't. Oh, yeah. So like to, to justify that, I talk about the science behind it and like, what does trauma look like? And then what what is it like in the body? So that they understand like, oh, this isn't just a reactive response. Like, no, this is somebody who is ha- like physically, like we talked about earlier, like physically processing things, and because of the way it's interpreted, this is what it looks like. And so trauma-informed is recognizing this is what it's like in the body and this is what it looks like out here. And here's how you help, like those vagus vagal nerve interventions yeah. or you know things like letting kids choose where to sit in the classroom mm-hmm. or having a dimmer switch instead of just having it to like full bright light and understanding like, oh, those things can impact the body yeah and
0: like a trauma response absolutely Mm -hmm. it's it's weird to think about how like like these are adults we will be talking to or students even so it's like you think that we've all grown up in a non-trauma-informed world or (laughs) maybe we have but not so like not so in your face I guess like subtly yeah all kind of like this is how things are there's no changing it and if there is it's probably like a big deal Yeah. So there's, there, it wasn't as trauma informed. You kind of just roll with what you, what you have.
1: Yeah. But now it's like
0: more intentional.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I guess when I think about like systems Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and agencies, I don't know if agency is the right word, but like maybe they weren't so trauma informed again, thinking about like the punitive side of things, like there, there are so many changes that have happened in like residential work where I mean, I think about, gosh, like I used to work at a program where they took the shoes, like the minute the kid came into the program because they were afraid that they would run away. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you're not just going to, why can't the kid just wear shoes though? It's just like, they're going to run, they're going to run with or without their shoes if they want to run. Like, why don't we just let them have the things or have a conversation or something like that? Or even gosh, like giving them a little bit more choice in the meals that they're eating. Like, shouldn't kids be allowed to make those decisions? And if they don't want to eat that thing, like have a conversation around what they would want to eat instead, instead of saying, well, if you don't want to eat, then you're not eating anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, like, and those were to, again, like those are things that are just so duh, like wouldn't you do that,
0: Great. but
1: at I think for agencies and services that have like protocols, mm-hmm. like this had, this had to be a really major shift around things.
0: Right. I wonder what that was like. go like, oh, no, we have to treat yeah, people like people now.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, we can't put them in the basement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's so funny, like, having this conversation with you, it's so duh, but I can mm. remember being in the group home and just thinking, like, why doesn't this staff person get it? Like, mm. how do they not understand? So there is, like, a component. So I guess I wonder, I wonder why it's a duh for some people and why other people don't see it, Hmm. you know, like, is it, is it education-based? Is it life experience-based where like, I know, and maybe life experience in terms of also where your healing is. So for me, like, I know what would work best for me. And so that's what I try to give to my kids. Hmm. So it's a duh because- this is my life experience. Of course I would want to be treated like this. So of course I'm going to treat you like that. But I also have like the awareness and ability to reflect on like, oh, I didn't do so well when people approached me this way. And so I would like it better. You know, if you only know one way, how do you know that you could be treated a different way? So I guess when I think about like staff and for the most part, staff that I've worked with definitely have their own trauma histories. And I don't remember if I told you, but I had done, um, an ACEs study in service with staff where they actually had to record their ACE scores. Mm. And there was a staff person that had an eight. and we could talk about the ACEs too, but that, that made me think like, wow, our staff have gone through significant trauma. And so that may be impacting either their ability to provide trauma-informed care because they're not at the place where they recognize like, oh, there's different ways of doing this, or they're becoming so, um, I don't like the word triggered. So I've been trying to think of a different word. They're becoming so, uh, I don't know what word I would use. Triggered. Yeah. <laughs> the environment that they're having their own reaction.
0: Mm-hmm. What is a different word for triggered? That's a tough one.
1: Yeah. I just feel like, uh, its I don't know. I don't know. I don't like the word triggered.
0: <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll let it simmer. Yeah. I feel like it could be misused eas- easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the ACEs study and <laughs> the scores and what that's Yeah, all
1: about. So the ACEs study uh, is a pretty monumental study uh, that was done on trauma. I want to say it was in the late 90s. Okay. So um, first of all, I highly recommend, and I know that I've shown it to you, but Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's TED Talk on, um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it's on childhood trauma, but childhood trauma... And that might just actually be the title of it, but she really nicely talks about the ACEs study and her work that she's doing, um, as an actual physician. So the ACEs study looked at something like 17,000 individuals, um, and administered this questionnaire of 10 ACEs. So ACEs stands for adverse childhood experience. So the individuals were prompted to simply check yes or no to these 10 questions. And they were um, related to emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, like parental incarceration was one that was on there. Uh, Domestic violence was a piece that was on there. Neglect. So these 10 questions related to potential traumatic experiences. And ultimately what the data showed Oh gosh, I can't remember this, the stats in specific. I'm tempted to say, I don't even want to get it wrong. So I feel like I should look it up. But overwhelmingly people had at least one ACE. So at least one experience of um, childhood trauma. And as they looked through the data, there were significant health outcomes that correlated with their ACE scores. So essentially the higher the ACE score, the more significant your health um, like well-being, physical well-being was impacted. Things like asthma, which is one of my favorite things to point out, Um, heart disease, lung disease, COPD, um, your likelihood of um, substance use or substance abuse, um, depression, suicide. um, Like, I can't remember. It was like over 200 different health outcomes were correlated. So um, the really... Interesting piece about that study is that it wasn't done in like a low socioeconomic neighborhood, 17,000 people who were poor, you know, from these, you know, difficult upbringings or whatnot, but this was done with like middle-class white folk in California. And so it sort of highlighted the fact that you don't have to look a certain way or or be of a certain group or socioeconomic status, socioeconomic status to have experienced trauma. So it really made this idea of trauma is universal. And so when I think about trauma-informed care, there's this assumption that I carry that everyone has experienced trauma. Like you cannot, I cannot assume otherwise, given the data and the evidence that's out there. And I'd also say, you know, those 10 questions were really significant experiences of trauma, but we can have other experiences of trauma that could be, you know, these sort of long-term chronic experiences or these little blips of acute trauma or these like small compounding pieces of trauma so it may not be a singular event that we think is traumatic and so therefore that's i just default to one people are inherently good <laughs> and two everyone has a trauma history in some way they have mm-hmm. something that's been traumatic
0: Right, and trauma isn't always something that has happened to you personally it could be witnessing yes something in that yeah and, and- yeah no keep going sorry i was gonna say honestly when i when i say that i think that absolutely we've all seen something traumatic thinking about Mm -hmm. the news recently we've all so everybody has trauma it is universal as you said
1: yeah so i started reading a book i didn't finish it i get a little distracted sometimes Mm -hmm. but it (laughs) talks about um so of course we have like our own trauma but there's also um shared cultural trauma so We may not have been i think the example that they gave was actually slavery and how the trauma of ancestors literally and this is regardless of slavery any traumatic experience literally changes the dna Mm -hmm. so like you literally hand down your trauma to your future generations and so we think about something significant like slavery or the holocaust right those had significant impacts on groups of people. And that DNA has been changed where folks living today are carrying the trauma of their culture still. So you may not have a direct connection to slavery. You may not have been enslaved, or you may not have been at any of the um, Holocaust camps, but you could still carry the trauma of your ancestors, which is like I feel like that would be something, you know, when I think about those people who call everybody snowflakes, right? Mm-hmm. Like that would be something I feel like they'd have a hard time believing, oh, absolutely! but there's science behind it. Wow. And then there's this idea of institutional trauma where you've been failed by the institutions that are supposed to protect you. So I, of course, I think about, um, the police and how some people have felt around that or the judicial system and feeling like, um, Yeah, gosh, I even think about I recently within the past year, two years, had to file a restraining order on someone. Mm -hmm. And when I went to the court, oh gosh, it was such a traumatic experience. Just well, the 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 need to do the restraining order was one. But then actually going into the court and having to see the person who I was filing this restraining order on. And then it was a male judge who I had to plea, like argue why. Mm -hmm like why I was justified in saying that this person should stay away from me. And I thought about how many instances where like, so I have a knowledge a background of trauma and I know like how to calm myself, like the strategies I can use in that moment, for how many men or women are going into these, you know, courts and having to say these things in front of the judges and then being failed by the judge. Cause they're not articulating well, or they didn't present the evidence in whatever way. Like, oh, that's a traumatic experience too. Like being failed by the system that's supposed to protect you. Right. Um, there was something else I was thinking too with trauma. I don't remember. I got so excited talking. So this is the stuff I get excited about because it's it's like we can do things about this and we can help people. Again, that mm-hmm. community vibe of like, if we can help one person manage their traumatic experience, like then they can go on and do great things with their life and maybe help others. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they have to but just knowing that one person is able to live a better life because you're honoring their the way that they live and honoring their life experience and making them feel safe
0: yeah i'm all for that yeah that's that's very eye-opening the um generational trauma
1: yeah shared cultural trauma That's what I was thinking. So you had mentioned like seeing things on the news as being traumatic. Yeah. And I, you know, I I think I'm sure most people recognize, I maybe most people recognize that it is like you're re you you may not have to be at the event to witness it, but you can still have trauma from witnessing it and a trauma response from it. And so when I think about gosh, unfortunately there's way you know, there's too many videos, which tells me there's too many incidents in general of things happening. Of course, I think about police, um, in race related issues, but like when, when I'm watching those videos, which I, you know, this is a whole nother issue. I go back and forth on whether I should watch them, but like part of me feels like it's privilege to not have to look in some ways, but at the same time, I know that watching disrupts my mental well-being. And so when I'm thinking about doing these things, I have to think, you know, what if I'm going to watch it, what do I need to have in place before I watch? And so that's sort of advice that I would give folks. Like if you know you're going into something that's potentially traumatic, have a what I would call a safety plan in place where it's like, all right, in the event that this does dysregulate me, what are three things that I can do to get back to center? Or, you know, something I also try to do is like the people that I'm close to, I'll tell them I'm going to be doing something that's going to potentially dysregulate me. Like I'm going to need these things afterward, because sometimes a lot of the times when you're having that trauma response, you can't get up to the front of your brain where you make good decisions. Right. You are just living back here in your trauma. And so having somebody else who can support you and who can get you calm and regulated so you can go back to making good decisions. Um, can be really helpful so I will tell like my husband I'll be like I just went through this and so I need this right now but like being able to clearly communicate it or saying I know you know I have something really challenging coming up today and so I need these things having that self-awareness and the ability to communicate
0: it yeah that's huge like being self-aware and acknowledging what you need or identifying what you need and what will help you that's another challenge in itself I feel like Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And so these talks are great because I like to think, you know, someone can take some piece of this and go, oh my gosh, I relate to that. And so now, now I can use this information to be better. Not that we always have to be better, but this idea of like, to be better for you, to feel better for yourself, not like to be successful and to make lots of money, but like, no, to be able to live your day without, you know, having that little voice that pops into your head that says whatever negative thing or to have not have that physical reaction when something is distressing.
0: All right, that's super, super important. And I feel like there's so many takeaway messages from, from this conversation right now. They're <laughs> everywhere. Um, back to the ACES study, when you talk yeah. about the outcome of, people's trauma do you think that with intervention would that decrease the outcomes or is it like predetermined
1: good question so the greatest thing about the like suggested intervention for um the aces so like okay great you have four aces now you're like predetermined to have copd like that's not the way it goes you're you're at an increased likelihood so the number one way to buffer against the impact, the negative impact of the ACEs is to have, and I can't remember the exact wording, but it's essentially a consistent um, a consistent adult person in the life. So we're, of course, we're thinking about childhood ACEs. Um, so anything that happens between birth to 18 years old. So if there's a traumatic event that happens for an individual between their years of zero through five, if they have a consistent and loving, unconditional adult in their life, those, the the potential negatives of the ACEs is decreased. And I would reason to say that it doesn't matter if it's in childhood, but in adulthood. So when I reflect back on what has been helpful for me, there's nothing, there's no particular thing I did. I started running, so that helped regulate how I felt, certainly helped me feel better about things but it was actually having my best friend um, who was again, like consistent, like if I was really angry one day, like she'd be the same sweet person the next day. If I was struggling and really emotional, like crying, like she would be so supportive. And so no matter what was happening in my life to have that person to come back to, that's what helped me build and sort of build my recovery. and then I too, of course, think about my husband, like I get a little bit wild sometimes, like I just get overwhelmed still. And it's just so great because no matter how I show up, like it's the same love that's coming from him. And so one of the things that you can do for kids with trauma or adults with trauma is to just be there and be their person. So recognize that, yep, they're having a reaction it's not personal, like we talked about before, and keep showing up and keep giving that consistent, unconditional, positive regard of, like, I'm here for you. You're safe. Like, you know, and as, of course, people start to heal from their trauma, different things are gonna come up and boundaries are gonna get tested. But that is just their way of seeing, like, is this situation still safe? And if you remain their person and you recognize that things ebb and flow, that's the one singular, like, uh intervention that can be done
0: to support mm-hmm. consistency yeah consistency is key yeah yeah if feel like with with the population i was with i keep talking about my field work it was i don't think the kids are receiving that consistent person with at mm-hmm. least with the students because we're in and out right. all the time and like it was tough to like tell them I'm ha- i have to leave now my time yeah. is up here and they're like they're used to students but they're also confused like why there's this new person coming so I was like that's not good for this certain population or yeah specifically that population
1: yeah it's it's tough and too thinking about like a lot of those sites just think about where I work like they have high
0: turnover from staff yeah that's a lot we're leaving
1: yeah yeah so you know you get kids sometimes that may connect really quickly and then you get kids who don't connect at all because they recognize that staff are just leaving. Mm -hmm. You know, I give, I think so much about, you know, the, of course the kids are in the program and there's this thought of, you know, they don't have whatever it takes and uh, to go home or maybe their skills aren't developed as well. But then I think about like adults that I know. And I feel like sometimes those kids have way better skills than some of the adults. Like they're comfortable for whatever reason, maybe it's trauma-related or otherwise, but, like, they're comfortable sharing things, and they will say things like, thank you, and please, Mm -hmm. quicker than some of the adults that, like, I just generally interact with, and so...
0: no, that's really true.
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, when I, yeah, thinking about turnover and building those healthy attachments, um, it's so important, and at the same time, there's a lot of adults who don't have that skill set. It's
0: true, it's that, like, you're constantly practicing it and they're constantly identifying like coping skills like a lot of kids would be like can i have this as my coping skill like a lot of adults don't even know <laughs> what they need to cope
1: <laughs> yeah it's yeah really interesting i know we should all just do our own safety plan mm-hmm. <laughs> just like when i feel overwhelmed i can do 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 all right what three things great that's all you need
0: yeah yeah
1: you can write them down on a card and
0: put it in your wallet and then you'll never forget that's a good that's a great idea yeah I have to I have to do that I need to figure that out too because I feel like I tell myself I can handle situations I'm fine I don't need anything I think I'm just like I'm just going to make things worse for myself if I don't (laughs) yeah you know
1: that sort of brings it to like the idea of self-care too working with the populations we've worked with like you are hearing a lot of um, sometimes hearing and witnessing a lot of intense experiences. And so, you know, vicarious trauma, certainly, mm-hmm. but also like, how do you reset yourself afterward? Um, and I've, you know, I get asked that a lot from some students when they're asking about, you know, you, you're hearing again, like all these difficult stories of life experience, like what do you do? And I had a kid once who, I think it was the second time, well, the, yeah, the, the first time I ever witnessed a restraint. Um, and it was super dysregulating for me and I remember it was like 15 minutes before I was supposed to leave work so I had the luxury of like after the restraint was done like getting in my car and leaving granted I literally sat in my car and just like I think I cried for a little bit and then I think I called a friend I just thought like I need to have something that I can do you know like whether, you know, crying counts, but like calling someone to like decompress, like making sure that the stuff doesn't, I don't know, like they're heavy, real experiences. This isn't, you know, somebody spilled something on a t-shirt at a clothing store. Like this is somebody you watched a kid get physically restrained by these two large adults. Like, Mm -hmm. wow. Okay. How do you process that and then also how do you go into work the next day and so one of the things that i did which i'm not sure if it's done all the time but like i actually sat with the kid and said i had a really difficult time watching that like that was hard for me because i felt for you in the situation and i don't think a lot of the kids really ever got that in the group home where i worked like it was so i don't know disconnected but so yeah so for me part of my safety plan was processing with them and, like, letting them know, like, that was hard for me. I can't imagine what it was like for you.
0: Well, yeah, I haven't heard. I don't think that's a thing. I, that's the first time I've heard that. But so that Was that helpful for the kid or were they, like, I don't know, what was that like?
1: They were definitely caught off guard because mm. it's it's just something that it happens and nobody really addresses, nobody really talks about, like, I don't know, there's so much value in sharing how you feel as an adult too. It also models like what you should, how you should communicate, mm-hmm. but I wasn't doing it. I wasn't doing, I was doing it for them in some way, but I was doing it because like, I, I needed that, but it wasn't selfishly motivated. Like I was thinking about it as an actual intervention. Um, sorry, they're mowing a lawn next door. <laughs> oh,
0: <okay. laughs>
1: um, so I think in a real trauma or true trauma-informed environment, we should be having those conversations and not like, gosh, I guess I'll share more. Um, So growing up, witnessing domestic violence, like my, my parents would argue with each other and get physical. And then there was no resolution. I never saw them talk it out or not even talking out, but it was just like this weird, like, oh, that just happened. And for three days, we're not talking to each other. And then suddenly things are back to normal. And so that's not, that's not a normal process. And so when I think about these kids or anyone who's been through some sort of experience like that, like showing like, we can have a conversation about it and it can be safe. Like it is a we don't have to pretend like this never happened. We're not denying this experience for you. Like, let's talk through it and figure out how can we prevent these things? Or what did it feel like for you? And what do you need to help? Because no one else, if we're not talking about it, we're not, we're not doing anything. Not only if not that we're not making things worse, like we are making things worse by not having the discussion. Mm-hmm. Like we can't just pretend it didn't happen.
0: Exactly. And yeah. We shy away from those conversations because for we don't even know why like it's discomforting or yeah we just want to ignore what happened but the impact you have to address the impact because that's huge yeah that's part of trauma trauma responses
1: yeah definitely Hmm. tough conversations are well they're tough for a reason yeah but they're they're valuable
0: absolutely just have to get your brain going like you just have to think and (laughs) Yeah. You okay with tough conversations yeah. that is the
1: you know going back to sort of what we started on like that is the leaning in part
0: mm-hmm. right
1: like the benefit here outweigh like not doing i don't even know if i can phrase this right doing something that is outweighs not doing anything right like we have to do something we have to lean into that discomfort like it is for not just the better of this child in this moment or the adult in this moment but again thinking about like how that can initiate this like, oh, you know, I feel safe. The world is safe. Now I may not, you know, this is of course over time. I may not have these, you know, large trauma responses anymore because I have this individual who's taking the time and having these conversations, um, making me feel safe.
0: Great. We We talked <sighs> about a lot, <laughs> deep breaths. Um, yeah. We can wrap up. I'm just gonna ask you one last question. Okay. This is a big one. What is oh, your board. the message you want to send out to all the listeners? Oh
1: man. What is the message? Um, oh, well, if I could tell anyone anything, oh okay, I've got like two things now. Okay. Uh, one, I would say, challenge yourself if you don't already feel this way, but challenge yourself to believe that people are inherently good right? And off of that comes like this get curious part, right? If something's, if someone's not doing something good, you know, what could be impacting that? And the second part is uh, really simple lessons. Be a good person. So we we talked about trauma-informed care and how it's really like a duh. Well, it's a duh because Roslyn, you're a good person and you know what it's like to treat someone the way that they want to be treated, the way that you would want to be treated. And so Default that people are inherently good. Get curious if they're sort of not. And then from a trauma perspective, like just be a good person when you're interacting. Um, and I guess I'm going to go one more thing because I'm thinking about mental health and you know taking care of yourself. Um, and I would say recognize that your environment has a, a strong influence on in how you feel. So sometimes you have to switch up your environment to feel better sometimes you cannot think yourself into feeling better you can't be like oh i don't want to be depressed anymore or i don't want to be anxious so i'm not going to be anxious no try switching up something in your environment to see if that makes a good change for you
0: yes awesome awesome messages (laughs) i love how simple they are but we did talk about the why behind these messages so yeah 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 be a good person be a good person. Don't people even think are about inherently it.
1: good. People are inherently good. Yeah. I think if we thought that more often and got curious. Mm-hmm. And two, thinking about yourself too, like you are a good person too. Sometimes we feel like maybe we're not so great or we're not doing what we should be doing. Like, no, you're doing great. You're a good person. You're doing the best you can with what you got.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, those are really, really good messages that everybody has to hear well thank you for being yeah. on the show yeah it's great okay. talking with you
1: yeah this was great it was nice to see you you too
0: <laughs> it's great to hear your voice again that's, too yeah thanks
1: for this opportunity I told you it made me a little uncomfortable but um I leaned in and look at I'm okay yeah, we made it through I, <laughs> that's right that's right
0: I was nervous too but I was like If there's one person to talk about mental health with, it's definitely you. Thank you, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this has been um,
1: encouraging, inspiring, validating, reminds me of why I do what what I do. So I I appreciate this opportunity from that perspective as well.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Hope to catch you in the next episode. All music provided by Stubborn Soul. Be sure to check him out on all music listening platforms at S-T-B-R-N-S-A-L. He also has a website where you can check out and purchase his merch. Stay safe, stay healthy, love you all, peace out, and take care.